Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Delenda asked by Robert E. Howard. This was first published in Worlds of Fantasy. Uh, was it 1968? I think uh, the first issue of. <laughs> And first volume, first volume, first issue of Worlds of Fantasy in, I think, 1968. I don't have that exact month handy because it doesn't say, which is sort of a sign of a magazine that was hastily not sure when it was going to get published. Uh, (laughs) um, But uh, there is a little um, editorial introduction, which I would like to read just because it gives us nice summary of why this story is being published uh, 32 years after, 34 years after uh, the author died. And it goes like this. Robert E. Howard died more than 30 years ago at the height of his writing career. His stories of heroic fantasy have a dash and color that have, ne- that have never been equaled, and the tales of King Cull and Conan the Sumerian are as avidly read as ever. But not all of his stories dealt with such fabled lands as Hyperborea and Volusia, and some of the unrelated ones were found among his papers after his death. Here is such a one, an original Howard fantasy hitherto unpublished. Now, um, it has had several subsequent publications, including in a collection of Robert E. Howard horror stories, which I don't think is exactly what this is. Um... It is in a fantasy magazine, and it's kind of like that. Um, but there's a better collection, I think. Um, I think it's called Swords of the North that gives a... Yeah, it, it sort of gives a a better feel of what this is about. Um, it is a ghost story, but it's not a, you know, a horror ghost story in that sense. Um, and yet what I think it mostly is, is it's Howard... Uh, who was, it's Howard the historian speculating as to what the people of history were like. And it's, it's filtered through his lens, which is a very strange lens. He was a a very strange man. (laughs) Um, wonderful person, uh, in his letters. I was reading his letters with, uh, H.P. Lovecraft this morning and it's just delightful to, read but one of the things that's sort of hard to see through if you're not attuned to looking through it is all the racism everything in howard's world is framed through race um and you see words like stock and breed um it's throughout the letters as well (laughs) he's talking about all the immigrants who who were coming in who came into texas and and he talks about you know there's a uh, great stock of Swedes just north of here, and and then uh, half bloods and mixes. He's he's always framing and making these kind of sweeping, insane declarations about what what any particular race is like, um, and it's it can be very distracting. And I think it's it's a good reader, <laughs> an experienced reader who can look past that and see that is actually he is talking about some really interesting stuff that isn't bullshit. W- race is bullshit. 
but he doesn't know that. He 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 puts great stock in it. <laughs> I just use that word in a different way. Um, but it, it's 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 kind of a defense as well. If you think about who Howard was, he was an Irish named uh, American living in Texas. Um, the Irish were not considered white for a long time, and he has lots of things to say about the uh, the the Celts, as he's calling them, uh, and the Irish that are not always flattering. He has these stereotypes that he throws all over things. And this story is fundamentally about race in a certain sense, but I would put it more, it's about tribes, tribes or language groups or ethnicities and mostly cultures. So with that in mind, I think it'd be great if you would read the opening passage for us and then maybe we can discuss where the story goes from there. Sure. Delenda Est. It's no empire, I tell you. It's only a sham. Empire? Pah! Pirates, that's all we are. It was Hunnegeis, of course, the ever-moody and gloomy, with his braided black locks and drooping mustaches betraying his Slavonic blood. He sighed gustily, and the Falernian wine slopped over the rim of the jade goblet clenched in his brawny hand, to stain his purple gilt-embroidered tunic. He drank noisily after the manner of a horse and returned with melancholy gusto to his original complaint. What have we done in Africa? Destroyed the big landholders and the priests? Set ourselves up as landlords? Who works the land? Vandals? Not at all. The same men who worked it under the Romans. We've merely stepped into Roman shoes. We levy taxes and rents and are forced to defend the land from the accursed Berbers. Our weakness is in our numbers. We can't amalgamate with the people. We'd be absorbed. We can't make allies and subjects out of them. All we can do is maintain a sort of military prestige. We are a small body of aliens sitting in castles and for the present enforcing our rule over a big native population who, it's true, hates us no worse than they hated the Romans, but... And then there's an interruption, and the story continues with someone else speaking, Mm -hmm. who is also identified by his uh, cultural background, Athelf, who is a Swavy, which in modern days we call a Swabian Mm -hmm. or Schwabian, and so on. It's funny, um, it takes a while for us to get into exactly where we are. Um, I think this is maybe why this story didn't sell right away, because basically Robert E. Howard was hip deep in the things that he was interested in, and I'm a big fan of history, and I barely am recognizing like what era we're even in. Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit about that, and then uh, it's actually quite a simple story, um, they're on a they're on a ship. They're headed uh, across the Mediterranean from um, modern day uh, Libya, I guess, towards uh, no, I think Tunisia. Yeah, Tunisia. Um, uh, and they're on their way to uh, uh, mediate a a uh, passing of the 
passing of a royal torch, right? Or so they say. <laughs> this is a historical actual trip that actually happened. Uh, but the people and the leaders here are the vandals. It, it's a funny kind of word because it is an English word and we know exactly what we're talking about when I say he's a vandal. Um, and yet the vandal people, uh, we know almost nothing about other than <laughs> what they did. Um, and they did a lot more than that. Um, and then they sort of pass out of history as a, as an ethnic group. Um, but they are, uh, uh, their language is even, we don't have any spoken examples of it. They were late to the writing game. Uh, but it was a Germanic language. They seem to have come from the very bottom of, uh, Scandinavia and then migrated to Poland and then migrated to near Turkey and then migrated to, uh, eventually to Spain where they set up, uh, a kingdom and then eventually into Africa and on their way right now to Rome to sack it. And that's where the word well, vandal comes not, from. That's not what they claim to be doing. Indeed. That's what ends up happening. That's why we have the word vandal and vandalism in our vocabulary is because of what eventually does happen in history. Um, but this story sort of provides a motivation and an inevitability and it's very interesting to think about what kind of a ghost story is this because I think upon first glance um, it seems to be a ghost story uh, of just like uh, the first time I read it I was like oh that's cute <laughs> but I think it's quite well set up especially in this maybe, opening maybe monologue maybe use a little bit of a precise yes absolutely um, I'm just saying that that opening monologue sets up uh, the one that you read sets up uh, a motivation that explains w where the ghost comes from. And then, yeah, you should explain what happens. <laughs> so the, the story begins with um, Hunnegeis um, and Athulf. Uh, Athulf is uh, the handsome Schwabian um, having a conversation with Genseric or Geiserich, his name is used different ways. Um, they're from different uh, Teutonic tribes. But we are told first when we are introduced to Genseric, who is the ruler, of, he's the prima inter pares, he's the, uh, the, the king uh, among them, that he is the smartest man in the known world. Mm -hmm. And then when he's described... He was the king of a race whose name had already become a term for destruction, and he was the possessor of the finest brain in the New World. And then later, he was, in fact, um, the strongest man in the known world, and he was a pirate, the first of the Teutonic Sea Raiders, whom men later called Vikings. But his domain of conquest was not the Baltic nor the Blue North Sea, but the sunlit shores of the Mediterranean. Now, that... That phrase, Delenda Est, is uh, famous from mm -hmm. uh, the oratory of ancient Rome. It has to do with the Punic Wars. is between Rome and Carthage. And uh, Cato, I think, always ended mm -hmm. his uh, speeches, the senator, with Cartago Delenda Est. Carthage must be destroyed. And eventually it was, uh, finally, 
from the Roman viewpoint in the Third Punic War. Um, school kids today in the West uh, learn about this, but as you're saying, Jesse, we don't know the names of most of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Alaric sacked Rome at one point, but who remembers Genseric doing that? We in the West don't tend to, and Athulf and, and Hunnegeis. Um, but they're talking about the trip that they are taking, and there are references to one battle after another mm-hmm. that a real student of medieval history, early medieval history, or late Roman, depending upon how you look at it, would have understood. Going back to the 3rd and 4th centuries of this era, and bring us down to the 5th century, which is when this is happening, in the 450s. Uh, the, what, what happens is that it seems like these three fellows are, are hail fellow well met. Mm-hmm. But Genseric is really the king, and at a certain point he says, okay, get out of here, I need my sleep, and and they leave. Um, he goes over to the table to take himself a last glass of wine, after they've given us this, uh, we've al- allowed us to overhear this sort of a history lesson, it's a reminder, um, but by the way, uh, very difficult, as you were saying, Jesse, because most of us don't know this history. Yeah. So, you know, when it says... He, they were never the same after the Battle of Chalons. We're going, huh? Yeah. Which well, What's that? Who wasn't the same? That's right. Exactly. It's a very strange story to read. It, it, it gets its power by our recognition of all of these marvelous recondite things. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't actually recognize right. them. Anyway, after a long setup, he goes over, Genseric goes over to get this uh, glass of wine, and he pours it, and as he looks up from having stood over the table, there is a fellow standing in front of him. He hadn't heard the door open. Who is this fellow? And they have a conversation. It's uh, clear that Genseric could attack him immediately, but there is something in his regal mane that uh, prevents him. It turns out that this unnamed fellow who says he's been on the ship since it left, um, and it left from Carthage, uh, which is now a central city in the budding empire that Genseric is uh, accumulating, uh, modern-day Tunis. Mm-hmm. Um, that This fellow says, the foe within is worse than the foe without. You have a traitor. And in the course of their discussion, he... He, he tries to prove himself. He, he drops a coin on the table. Genseric doesn't look at it. And he picks up a silk girdle. He storms out. He, he leaves the room, the cabin, having said, you have a traitor. That's the worst enemy. When Genseric turns to follow him, he goes outside, and there is a, a guard with a spear. And he says, the guard, where did that fellow go? The guard says, there is no fellow. Well, he passes along, surprised, and uh, goes into the room of Athulf, because the fellow had told him that the traitor is the handsomest among us, Mm. among you. And we've, interestingly, he is not unhandsome, is how he's been described. (laughs) And and there he is, um, lying there, garroted with that silk girdle. And... He is almost done writing a letter which Genseric with difficulty reads. So he's, he's a vandal. He's not sophisticated. Um, 
And the letter says, uh, it's, it's to the Empress of Rome. Um, don't worry, I have fooled him into thinking that he's coming to help you, uh, but in fact, I uh, will keep him until the, the moment when you have assembled the other forces, and then I'll lead him into the bay, and you can conquer him. So he was, in fact, looking for Genseric's defeat. In fact, Genseric sacks Rome in 455, and that is often considered to be the end of the Roman Empire of the mm -hmm. West, um, which is you know, crucial. The Roman Empire of the East continues and ultimately becomes the Ottoman Empire. Um, so he's amazed. Uh, Genseric is amazed. He looks down at the coin, and as was typically the case of coins in this period in the Mediterranean world, it is stamped on one side with the face of the ruler. And the face that he sees on the coin is the last line of the story. Mm -hmm. It's Hannibal. And now, that is somebody we story, know. <laughs> exactly. And earlier in the story, as they are exchanging this little history lesson with each other, um, we're told that uh, there was a general um, who was able to actually, uh, there was a great general once who thought as much, that is, that you could, you could attack them, uh, but it didn't work out. But Hannibal did, in fact, um, attack the Roman Empire successfully, mm -hmm. famously with elephants, uh, by coming in from the north. This time, Genseric is coming in through the south. So the only thing that makes this a ghost story is that the warning that Genseric gets is from the ghost of the last great um, non-Roman enemy of Rome, mm -hmm. who is helping Genseric by dispatching um, this this uh, traitor so that Genseric can adjust his plans and actually go and attack the Romans. So, Delenda Est, it doesn't have to be Carthago, it could be Roma. Mm -hmm. Cute. It's the hatred of the Romans extend over centuries. The ghost helps. And it's full of, as you say, racism. It clearly is so, so Germanophilic mm. that one has to wonder whether or not um, Howard was enamored of what was going on politically in the years just before his death in 1936. It's, um, it's very important to remember that that the, the people then believed this stuff was like legit. Um, it wasn't like it, it wasn't like a it wasn't everyone was a hundred percent racist. That's not how it was. What it was is it was sort of the air that they were breathing. the 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 nation's laws at the time were thoroughly and completely racist. You know, it was it was exactly like that. But it, even for a guy who didn't have a lot of personal enmity towards, you know, people of other races, he was breathing it and thinking about it all the time. It, 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 it was it was like kind of his philosophy. And that's why it's for what's going on in here. It, it seems overwhelming. But I like to think of like when you sort of take a thousand mile view of this looking down mm -hmm. you'll you'll see a kind of like uh patterns and one of the things that uh howard was always arguing with lovecraft about and basically i think that 
it, it really affected Howard's writings and didn't really much affect um, uh, Lovecraft's at all is when Lovecraft would make a point about something, um, Howard would try and argue with it in a story. He would write a story that would sort of think about it. And he had this very massive interest in in the fall of civilizations and barbarism. It comes up in this story. But uh, just taking that thousand-mile view, one of the things that we know about the Romans is that they think that they eventually, their ancestors were Trojans, and that they took this journey that's in uh, you know, a very famous story called the Aeneid um, through the Mediterranean, stopping in Carthage, and then eventually setting, uh, settling uh, where they did in Rome um, and ending up in a war. And that's sort of a reversal of the Odyssey. What's so interesting is if you trace the path of the Vandals, it's a very similar opposite to that of Hannibal's people and their attempt to try and take down their enemy. When the Romans attacked Carthage, they were always attacking from the sea. But when Hannibal attacked, he crossed into Spain, took, went through France, through the Alps with those elephants, down into the uh, Italian peninsula, and then basically freely attacked all of Italy and just couldn't seem to get Rome itself. And so here this ghost comes and says... Oh, you traveled all through uh, France and into Spain and down into Carthage, and we lost. And now your enemy, our enemy, is going to do to you again what they did to us. Stab him for me. (laughs) And that is such a powerful image that if you sort of realize, oh, yes, all of these tribes, and there's so many that are mentioned... The, uh, the Vandals were actually a, an amalgamation of two groups. It was like the, the Vandals themselves and the Alans, who are um, kind of like the Huns. They're sort of a uh, uh, Iranian... Um, uh, Attila's mentioned in here, right? There, there's so many of these, these tribes, and it's really hard for us to know much about them other than what the Romans said about them. And so here... We've got the, the, the description of the bodies and the brains and the muscles and the, everybody's wearing purple robes. But mm-hmm. this is something that's so important for Howard is he always thinks that these barbarians come in and then the empire will collapse. And then the, there's decadence within that group and then that empire collapses and then new barbarians and it's like a cycle he kept thinking it's a cycle and so what's so cool about this story is it's a super hyper condensed version of that and we can almost like see this as a non-supernatural story <laughs> with the fact that it's considered a ghost story because Hannibal shows up the reason he recognizes Hannibal is because in Carthage this city that they've now conquered that he was just moments ago uh, they were just moments ago lamenting uh the you know the fact that they can't actually uh control this place because they don't have the the numbers there's like maybe 20 to 40,000 vandals and they control a vast empire well a, a pretty big empire um he, the reason they recognize him is because secretly hidden in Carthage are these symbols 
these statues of this great Hannibal, who ultimately was defeated. They had to be secretly hidden away, but that's how you recognize him is on that coin. And uh, it's like, it, was it just the wine? It's a cool ghost story on top of being all this history. It is. I, I think it raises a lot of uh, interesting speculation, as you say. Not a lot is known. We're told that Genseric is, in fact, the one who invited Attila in mm-hmm. to, help, to help destroy outlying parts of the Roman Empire. And then two years later, Attila is dead. Mm-hmm. So Genseric manages to get Attila. I mean, his supply lines are just too long. Um, Genseric gets him in there. He's a terrific chess master and uses his enemies to help him. Um, so we're in favor of him. Genseric was, that is where we admire him as a, uh, as a general. Genseric was pure German, right? Despite all of this racial mm-hmm. intermixing or tribal intermixing, Genseric was pure German of medium height with a magnificent sweep of shoulders and chest and a massive corded neck. His frame promised as much of physical vitality as his wide blue eyes reflected a mental vigor. Now, you can look at that as racist. You can look at it as, in fact, something that the the National Socialists would have loved mm-hmm. um, had they been reading it at exactly this period. But in following, as you say, everything is looked at in racial terms, in following this, the the stranger who appears mysteriously across the table from Genseric is tall, dark, with a stately head of flowing locks confined by a dark crimson band. So this other race, a curling patriarchal beard swept his breast, a dim misplaced familiarity twitched at the vandal's mind as he looked. Aha, this is another inherent nobleman mm-hmm. but he is visually in terms of racial physicality he's the opposite right he's mm-hmm. not the biggest and tallest and bluest eyed um sorry genseric is medium height this guy is tall and dark and yet it is he who manages to give the warning to genseric that allows genseric to finish the job that he, Hannibal, had begun. The punchline, it was Hannibal, Mm -hmm. is supposed to make us think, oh, well, this is a terrific revelation. But i got to (laughs) say, because the racial stereotypes ultimately are used as signifiers rather than necessarily as um, justifications for prejudice, and because the historical references are intended to be savored rather than befuddle us. Mm -hmm. Having gone through the story once and having learned what the different pieces mean, um, it becomes a rich and beautiful story. Agreed. Whereas at first it's confusing. For instance, um, we're told that... uh, as if they were crusaders, uh, we should be able, we, Genseric and the Vandals, we should be able to, to deal with these people um, if we just would give up our faith. Mm. You know, um, right? We should be their kind of Christians. Remember, Augustine is from Egypt, I believe. Um, you know, there's a lot of Christianity in North Africa at this period. But 
Genserichus and Arian. Uh, that is A-R-I-A-N. Right? Arianism is a non-Trinitarian variety of Christianity, which mainstream Christianity came to see as heterodox and mm-hmm. ultimately um, uh, disposed of. Uh, he says he's not going to do that. He's not going to change his faith. But when he first sees the ghost, he doesn't know what's a ghost at <laughs> first. It's not he by says, God. Exactly. By Odin, Genserich's Arianism was scarcely skin deep. Yeah. What do you in my cabin? So when you go through the story the second time, when you realize the the complexity that that Howard has implied behind the historical conflicts, the tribal uh, uh, battles, the the racial typing, the the difference between intelligence and um, strategy on the one hand and deceit and betrayal on the other that handsome is not as handsome does mm-hmm. um, the story in fact doesn't depend upon that terrific punchline it's Hannibal in fact the story is much richer mm-hmm. realizing that we know it's Hannibal and we know that it is the the further ripples of the historical stone that's been thrown into the Mediterranean hundreds of years earlier, although Genseric at first does not know that. Mm-hmm. It's a story of his discovery and our recognition that there is, in fact, subtlety. I think it's a terrific story, but it requires reading twice. It does, at least. Um, I, I want to point out that, that um, Athalf, um, he, he's distinguished in a couple other ways from his fellow shipmates. Um, Uh, I'll just read his paragraph on page 90. Uh, Some of that hate could be done away with, interrupted Athalf. He was younger than Hunagai, clean-shaven and not unhandsome, his manners less primitive. He was a Suevi, whose youth had been spent as a hostage in the Eastern Roman court. And then he makes the argument, they're Orthodox, if we just convert, right? Um, Like he has, right? He's the... He's he's um, spent his youth as a hostage. This is a very old-fashioned and, I think, very interesting way of dealing with problems. You've got a war going on with your neighbors. Well, one way to prevent them from attacking you is to embed some of your family in their royal court. First of all, they'll tell you, right, um, if there's stuff rumbling. And second of all, if you are attacked and you have their hostages, um, you don't want to lose family members over this, so it prevents war. This is actually the basis for royals marrying royals, right? Is it a way, you know, Queen Elizabeth is uh, related, when her, it was her grandson is the uh, Kaiser, right? Oh no, Queen Victoria's grandson was the Kaiser, right? Uh, the fact that these two families eventually go to war is sort of the signal that these these uh, hostage takings don't work very well. But one of the problems when you send your family off to be a hostage in another person's court is you might be converted to their ways, your their religion, take on their values, take on their table table manners, start shaving, and look more like the people there which is all perfectly reasonable, but it can lead to betrayals like this. So 
It's it's. I like to go for it. Everything that you say about this hostage uh, situation seems to me eminently true. I would add two other things to it. One, that there is, in fact, in Christianity, going back to what Christians call the Old Testament, a crucial example of this in the reverse. That is, Benjamin is held hostage by the unrecognized Joseph, who is the viceroy of the pharaoh, in order to get the rest of his family to come down into Egypt. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the hostage is kept again for those familial reasons, but it's not a gift. It is, in fact, a seizure. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would say is, Athol converted, but we don't know why. Indeed. Right. When he says, if we could bring ourselves to renounce Arianism, maybe he's saying, you know, I brought myself to renounce whatever I grew up with to become Eastern Orthodox, and I'm happy to do whatever is expedient. And I think that's one of the, the differences that does show um, Howard's persistent uh, ideology. The fact that Athulf is hypocritical and political in the sense of um, infinitely adjustable sets him against both Hannibal and Genseric, who are men who know what they want to do. And they are men of action guided by clear principles. You may or may not agree with the principle of conquest, but they can be trusted. There's a reason that they are leaders. Athol never would be. And uh, Howard focuses on leaders. His, uh, uh, and I, I can't stress enough how important it is uh, for listeners to spend some time with the prose. We have not spent that much time with it, but I'd love to read just a, a paragraph describing um, just the language is just amazing. Listen to this. Born on the banks of the Danube and grown to manhood on that long trek westward when the drifts of the nations crushed over the Roman palisades, he had brought to the crown forged for him in Spain all the wild wisdom the times could teach. In the feasting of swords and the surge and crush of races, his wild riders had swept the spears of the Roman rulers of Spain into oblivion. When the Visigoths and the Romans joined hands and began to look southward into the intrigues of Genseric, which brought Attila's scarred Huns swarming westward, tusking the flaming horizons with their myriad lances, Attila was dead now. So uh, just that, that that image, the feasting of swords, the flaming horizons with myriad lances swarming and tusking, it's... He is an absolute poet. And when he turns his hand to prose, it is beautiful as well as well-plotted. And he, you know, he, I don't know that he was perfect on all of these characters all being on that boat. I'm not an expert on this piece of uh, part of history. But what I can tell you is I don't really care because when he gets <laughs> it right, he's getting it right in more than one kind of way. And that language is just incredible. It, 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 it's really irre irreplaceable. And that's why, though many have imitated, nobody can do Robert E. Howard the way Robert E. Howard could. Howard looked at history the way we look at Howard's writing. Mm. There's always more to say. 
Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.